Hi, this is Kirby Shibaga. I'm Nirav Desai. And I'm Vinay Narayan, along with Stephen Shu. Welcome to the XRC Pod podcast. And we're, you know, taking this another step further with the leadership series uh, that we've been doing. Um, you know, as, as we kind of look at the industry and look at some of the challenges that we face, one thing that a common theme that pops up a lot is leading through a lot of the challenges that we have as an industry. Um, and leadership means so much more than you leading a team. It's also self-leadership. And that's why we want to take a quick, a really good spotlight on leadership during these times and for the industry with leaders that really exemplify some of the qualities or some of the thinking that you need uh, in order to really build successful organizations. And you being a really core part of that, uh, building success for yourself is also a core foundation. Uh, and we're always excited to have our guests, and our guest today is also extremely special in that if you were to do a word cloud of this person's successes and skills, you would see things like success, engineering, IP law, M&A, Wall Street, Speaks Japanese, uh, Gates Foundation, and Global Health. And all that is to describe our guest today, Gabriel Jones, co-founder and CEO of Propio. Gabe, welcome to the show. Thanks. Really looking forward to it, Vinay. Yeah, did, I, did I miss anything in these word bubbles? And I'm sure there's so much more to add. Yeah, yeah, definitely like failure, uh, resilience, starting over, um, you know, uh, boredom, excitement, technology. We'll get there. We'll go into all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, in this podcast, we like to keep it very serious. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I think I might have actually misled you a little bit. I just want to give you a warning. Uh, one of us on this podcast has a tendency of bringing up Bruce Springsteen unnecessarily too much, even if it's just once. And I'm going to give you a hint. It's not me because I'm cool. It's going to be, yeah. So just be ready for that. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a thing that okay, happens. What, what, if it, what if it's me? Is that, is that the yeah. joke? <laughs> I like to think of the name more as 57 channels and nothing on. <laughs> uh, really for this Nero, okay so really uh, we are going to do some editing is that what you're saying some of these yeah. uh, <laughs> our budget's low editing that doesn't really happen too much <laughs> uh, but you know we do uh you would like to kick it off with the hard questions first so gabe and for the rest of the group what came first the chicken or the egg yeah that's a fantastic question that no one's ever asked before thanks for that Vinay. um <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I think about that, like, there's the whole, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson, like, literal answer, right? Which I think is fascinating, too, because it goes back, like, I mean, you're talking days of Aristotle, right? Um, literally, the egg had to come first, right? Because whether it was a physical chicken egg or, like, an egg and an embodiment of an egg in some, like, amniotic fluid, at, you know, some millions of years ago, it kind of had to happen that way. But I think it's actually more interesting to think about, um you know, not the literal interpretation of did the chicken have to emerge from the, you know, the jungle, the combination of multiple other birds first and then have the egg. And that's the first chicken egg, right? So it matters how you ask the question and frame it literally. Uh, but I think it's actually a really interesting way to think about companies and culture and, you know, what emerges first. I mean, and even ideas, right? I'm saying the first idea is never the right idea, right? That's not a shot at somebody for sharing what could become a great idea. It's like the beginning of a process. And that's what an idea is. It's the, the kernel, the notion, the thing that opens the door to the conversation that ultimately yields the great idea. Um, and for me, that's, that's really how I think about that question. It's more like, how do you create an environment to create both more chickens and eggs, right? And they, they sort of drive each other. Yeah, an egg's a great environment or example of an environment, right? Because it, it is truly in an environment, uh, both rich in nutrients and, and also there's ex external environmental factors as well. And all those things kind of place that. Um, but, you know, I know I see Nerev smirking. And so I know I know what's coming next. So go ahead. Just get it out, Nerev. No, no, there's, there's not, not, not one this time. But it is kind of it. I, I just got, got me thinking about environment for success, incubation. And the analogy just comes back to itself, right? Um, in terms of uh, nurturing success. Yeah, for sure. Well, environment's correct, right? We are in an environment, um, well, there's a lot of things that are they're amplified because of this environment. And that's what we really want to talk about today is, you know, what are the tools and skills necessary uh, that we need to adapt to that um, they're not necessarily new, but now we're more aware of the necessity to address um, how are we thinking or framework of thinking? How are we looking at things like diversity and inclusion, uh, culture, team building, prioritization? So, Proprio, uh, you guys are doing some really amazing things in the healthcare space, um, and I don't. I want to make sure that uh, we do it just in terms of really 
talking about it properly. Uh, where is that challenge and, and what you're really trying to solve there uh, for a couple of a couple of reasons, right? Starting a uh, startup is difficult. Healthcare startup is extremely difficult. And now managing one through a, a pandemic really, I think it's a, it's a great case study um, in terms of how to do things and what are some of the challenges and how to do some things well. So uh, yeah, let's talk about Propria for a second. How'd you start with sure. Propria? Yeah, yeah. Um, super quick history, just the foundation of the company. Um, at the time that it was started, um, I think about four and a half years ago, um, I was working with uh, Bill Gates and various, you know, the various arms through which he does many things and channels that, like uh, the Gates Foundation, um, obviously Microsoft, uh, Intellectual Ventures, so many ways that he gets involved in things. And I was really looking for an opportunity to do something at scale. Um, and really bring a breakthrough technology to to the world. And how do you start something like that? It's incredibly daunting, right? Thinking with those criteria, uh, you're in danger of never starting anything if you have such lofty goals, right? But it, it comes back to, let's take it back to the chicken or egg, right? How do you start with that context? Um, you gotta put the people around you, ask them the tough questions. You know, you're doing amazing things. You're a neurosurgeon over here, a professor over here, a PhD over there, a you know, brilliant software engineer, hardware engineers. Uh, if you surround yourself with people like that and constantly push them and ask those kinds of questions, uh, how do we solve these kinds of problems? You know, the right idea will come up. The question is, can you recognize it? Do you have enough expertise around you to, 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 to recognize it, pick the right one, and then start refining it, right? That, that sort of amniotic fluid, like we were just talking about, can you create that environment? It starts with the people. And then asking the questions and, and pushing the agenda uh, of uh, really ambitious questions, right? So we were asking, um, what is the, well, first we were asking, can virtual reality, can immersive technology help in medicine? Just as a simple question, right? Um, and the answer is definitely yes. You know, training and, and other applications like that are, are obvious and apparent and we're already seeing traction there. But with Propria, we were trying to ask a quite a bit higher level question of, what is the uh, main limiting factor in delivering world-class medical care, healthcare, medicine to everyone in the world? And then the next question you know, goes to like, what are the technology solutions that could actually make that a reality? Instead of saying, hey, how do we force XR, MR, VRAR into medicine? It's what is the problem set that we're trying to solve for at what scale and what technology platforms or solutions actually might help us get there? Uh, so it took us actually a little while to reformulate the question into the right set of questions. And then it led us into the operating room where we went and saw a ton of surgeries uh, with world-class surgeons who were saying, most, most frequent pain point that they were expressing is, I can't see what I need to see in the ways that I need to see it uh, at the right time, right? When I need to see it. Okay, that's interesting. So we started with that problem statement of, can you help surgeons to see better? Okay, then what does that get you? Um, and in, in so doing, we invented a, a new way of doing real-time immersive visualization. Think of it as uh, live VR video with rich depth information, color information, image reconstruction, multimodal imaging, all in the operating room that enables the physician to do exactly what they said, you know, really solve that pain point of see everything they need to see in the surgery, immersively, you know, external to the body, inside the body, really zoom inside, look around corners and, and predict the results of their next move before they make it, which is sort of a mind-bending reality, but it is exactly what we've built. So it's a visualization system, lots of cameras and sensors, robotics, um, uh, very, very advanced headsets, uh, multiple viewers in the operating room and beyond, uh, as implications for both AR, VR, uh, and, and something in between, what we call synthetic AR, um, which I can describe if we get into it. But ultimately, it's a competitor for every imaging modality uh, and, and an extender of what imaging modalities in, in healthcare can do. So x-rays, uh, CTs, MR machines, you name it, all become either obsolete or much more effective based on what Proprio does. Um, and, and we've had hundreds of surgeons use it and they're pretty amazed. Uh, so we're, we're pretty excited about it. And it's, uh, we think quite a breakthrough. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's I've seen various prototypes and I've seen some of the uh, testimonials as well. Uh, I, I'm always more fascinated, not just with the talent you've built and the problems you're trying to solve for, but also convincing surgeons that there's a better way. So yeah. That to me is, yeah. I, I think, can be an episode in itself. But uh, 
you have to build a lot of trust, right, to do that. And I think you talked about reformulating questions, and I think there's a lot of respect that comes from that. How were how you able to even get the idea off the ground or be able to sell this to to healthcare professionals? Well, it's yeah, so much at stake. Yeah, it's a lot of discipline. I think I think there's a lot to to be applied to other areas of product development and and really company building. Um, and, and we learned a lot. And we did it wrong at first, you know. Uh, somebody mentioned the Oculus DK2, uh, which was inspirational for a lot of us, right? Um, or DK1, DK2. Um, DK2 is when it got a little bit less nausea-inducing, right? <laughs> a couple of actual experiences where you could go, okay, I can connect the dots on the future here. Um, you know, imagine doctors not being really exposed to that very much. More technologists like us were, were seeing those things early. Um, but young, younger doctors, gamers, um, you know, people had grown up with video games, digital natives, starting to come into the medical world and into the, the surgical suite in the operating room um, around that time, right, with that background. So we, we got it wrong, right? We took the DK, DK2 and we glued cell phone cameras on the front. Um, and uh, we thought we were going to replace these things called loops, L-O-U-P-E-F, which mm -hmm. are ubiquitous throughout all of medicine, all of surgery, and actually come from jewelry making, not from medicine. <laughs> so, so magnifying glasses on your face, right? A helmet. So sort of a, I don't know if you'd call it elegant, but a simple solution to the problem of, I need to see that two to eight X magnification in the surgery uh, and still be able to perceive things around me. You know, we had the erroneous assumption that VR plus cameras on the front of a VR headset would be a good solution to solve that. It's not that it isn't, it's that it's overkill. It's not actually solving the right problem because loops are actually just fine. Um, and you can make them fairly cheaply, right? a couple hundred bucks to a thousand bucks. And every doctor actually kind of uh, adores their loops. You get a set when you go into residency and you kind of live with that forever. Um, sometimes even the, the hospital when you go in will buy you your set. So it's, it's like, a, you know, it's like a security blanket. So do you really want to go try to replace somebody's security blanket? Not right away, right? You got to delight them in some other way. So we, uh, we took about six months really diving in with doctors, evaluating that uh, DK2 with, with cameras on the front of it, and found that it actually wasn't the loops or even a microscope that cost six or $800,000 that we really should be focused on primarily replacing. It was back to that same question that we eventually got to, which was, I can't see everything I need to see in the ways that I need to see it, right, in, at the mm -hmm. time that I need to see it, in the fashion that I need to, to not just see, but interact with those data. And so simple magnification and just coming up with a better digital microscope and a headset that helped you do that slightly better, or maybe a lot better, was, was not good enough to, again, solve that, that higher level problem of, you know, better medicine for everyone at scale everywhere in the world, equally. Uh, not possible with a slightly better set of magnifying glasses on your face, right? And so we, we refined that idea through having many, many users come in. And like you said, physicians, surgeons in particular are... Um, they're a peculiar bunch. Um, they're extremely highly trained. Um, my co-founder, the pediatric brain surgeon from University of Washington in Seattle Children's, Dr. Browd, spent, I counted this out uh, for a presentation uh, last year, 17 years in training from deciding to go pre-med to finishing his pediatric neurosurgery rotation, basically living in the hospital for seven straight years. Wow. MD, PhD, neurosurgery, brain surgery, and then pediatrics. And I joke with him because when he was done, he was like 40, right? <laughs> Congratulations, now you're a doctor. Like you can start your career. Um, and so you, you kind of come to this conclusion that I think fits really well with that question that we've eventually got to, which was, how do you take this most scarce of human capabilities and not try to replace it, right? But augment, enhance, extend, and multiply it. Uh, you're not going to, anytime near term, completely replace all the value that is created in those 17 years of training and then, you know, five or 10 years of performing surgeries after that. Um, what you can do is maybe try to shorten the training period and you can amplify and extend what the capabilities are once they're built. And so you can attack the problem in, in a few different ways. And that's where we got to from replacing these hundreds of years old loops and ground glass to uh, it's actually the human that we're using these technologies to extend. And ever since then, it's been much more focused and we've made a ton of progress. And that's such a common theme I think we've noticed with successful implementations of XR, uh, really two themes. Mm -hmm. One is it's really being disciplined around the problem you're trying to solve for. 
and trying to reevaluate, reevaluate. And I think that's leadership, right? You can love the technology, we can love even the problem set, but is it the right one? And then just really talking through it. Uh, and the other thing I think you mentioned as well, and this is actually the, the core hallmarks of why I think XR is such an exciting industry. It's, it's, it's a people first, it's a person first industry. We're not trying to replace anything uh, except for bad, maybe bad processes or bad experiences, but really we're in the business of augmenting, making, uh, creating superhuman powers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I love how you talked about this really precious commodity, this or this, this really precious skill set uh, in, in, in physicians. And it's not necessarily about replacing, but you, I think the teams also worked really hard about reducing the cognitive load as well, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. The ability for strain and, and all, all those uh, various kind of stakeholders that are in there. Yeah, I wanted to I want to talk about cognitive load. Super interesting. Um, so let's come back to that in a second, if you don't mind. Well, as I hijack your podcast, sorry. Uh, I actually think what the point you made is really important. It's why you're starting to see some successes in content creation, not just in XR, but in sort of um, immersive um, type experiences. That's why you're seeing these Twitch or streaming like experiences around concert experiences be, become so popular now, right? Um, and you're seeing millions of people attend a uh, a virtual uh, uh, musical event, right? I won't even, it's not the same thing as a concert. Like we need a new term for that, right? Because when you've got, you know, one of these, uh, um, I'm going to show my age here, but one of these brilliant performers who uh, I wasn't aware of before, but now are you know, creating these um, 100 foot tall versions of themselves in Unity or Unreal, right? And millions of people from around the world can experience almost like a custom made experience for themselves and 10 other people. Imagine going to that concert. Again, we need another term because it's such a different experience than physically going somewhere. You know, you've got, I think one of our investors um, posted the other day about about 5,000 people attending a Japanese streamers concert. You know, that was a, a very kind of bespoke experience paying $70 a person and seeing a uh, multimodal and multimedia presentation of, you know, huge digital sort of display with the four band members, you know, on camera behind a live manga 3D representation of the lead singer. Like that's the world we live in right now. And we need to take that kind of creative thinking that's occurring in, in content creation and apply it to so many other places. I'd say surgery is obviously one of those. Um, sorry, I wanted to, to make that point that we're now finally seeing that occur in the presentation of the content as well. Um, that's very exciting. And I think for XR, that's only a good thing. Yeah, that's a great. These are great examples. For sure. I think, uh, you know, these, these, these things don't necessarily live in isolation. Uh, we're at all interrelated, right? Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Kirby. Yeah, I had a quick question just thinking about what you said there. It Coming from a little bit of a manufacturing background, mm -hmm. uh, this reminds me of like non-destructive testing. Uh, and uh, th maybe there's other applications for the technology you're building there as well. But mm -hmm. my real question is, how do you know that you're improving the experience? Like, how do you quantify that? Great question. Yeah, I think um, there has been almost zero effort to really quantify and prove that in medicine. We really have we've asked way too much of this particular user base, right? We've basically loaded on, you know, one experience after another, one set of pain points after another, such that the end experience of all these tools that a doctor has to learn how to really put up with in order to perform surgery and really do what they're there to do, which is deliver care to another human being, by the way, right? First, do no harm, the Hippocratic Oath. In order to do all that, it's such a, a series of workarounds. So we're fond of saying, you know, surgery today is all about workarounds. Literally, when the doctor goes in the OR, they might as well be a running back. I mean, they have to dodge all these equipment and wires and all this stuff just to get to see the patient who might be draped and prepped such that it almost feels like a non-human experience and interaction, right? So, so taking it back to human to human, to what it was intended to be, actually involves the removal of a lot of technologies, if that makes sense. Getting a lot of things out of that sort of sacred space between the physician and the patient and bringing it back to um, uh, a more direct interaction with the care and the delivery of the care. Um, I think oftentimes we try to interject technology into a situation and say, hey, look at me, look at my great solution. Uh, it takes a lot of uh, being humble, I think, to say, what if our product actually disappeared? 
and you didn't even know it was there, right? Um, and once we had, had that kind of insight and were able to be humble about it, we said, oh, okay, that's actually the, the standard that we need to hold ourselves to. Um, and so we came up with this concept called calm design. And uh, what that means is that technology should melt into the background and just feel like an extension of you, right? Um, whether that's, you know, uh, instead of iPhone 1 looking at uh, I, the, the Apple Watch version 5 or 6 or whatever we're on now, and it actually delivers on some pretty amazing interactions, right? Where you can take a note to yourself as I'm jogging along thinking about this po podcast and thinking what I want to say to Vinay, I can literally just jot down a message and it not only saves it, saves it to the cloud, emails it back to me, and I can play it back to myself in my own voice or be jogging along, you know, like it's freaking Star Trek, you know, talking to someone all the way across the world with a, a little radio, a little phone magically on my, on my wrist. And the technology almost melts away. It's almost gone, right? So calm design is this concept of uh, it should feel like you're just interacting in the way that you actually want it to, as opposed to here's this thing that we invented so you could write on a piece of paper and you have to figure out how to, how to interact with it. The question should be, how do I capture my thoughts? Not, how do you use a pen? You know, uh, the, the, the analogy I think of is like the hammer and the nail, right? Um, you can hand somebody a nail and a hammer and they'll probably figure out how to put the nail into the wall or the two by four or whatever. And they may even invent a new way to grip that hammer or some way to modify that product to that experience that leads to a slightly better installation of that nail, right? You stand up those two by fours in that framing. But the question you should be asking, we should be asking is, you know, what is the purpose of building that structure, right? The purpose is to provide shelter for humans so they can not be, you know, prey to some other animal so that they can be warm and safe and so they can focus their energy on something else. Ah, that's interesting. That starts to lead you towards an insight, right? So take that and extrapolate it to now we have gone from being able to nail two boards together to building these tremendous structures and skyscrapers. And now we're in a post we work world where we're all working from home and everything's virtual. And we've gotten back to the actual question about the experience. This goes to the organization as well. Not why do we, you know, do we need these physical spaces like skyscrapers or mud huts or wood structures or whatever? The real question is how do we make great things? That's the question, right? So if that's the case, then, we can ask ourselves, is the immersive environment, is in-person, is hardware, software, how is it best created and how is it best represented, right? And some of that's going to be work from home. Some of it's going to be virtual. Some of it's going to be collaborating in VR together. Some of it's going to be a great surgeon on site performing a surgery. Some of it's going to be a gr the greatest surgeon in the world manipulating robots remotely to perform a surgery in Vietnam or vice versa, right? And that's the truly exciting uh, element of immersive and product design and thinking about it in this way. What is the real question we should be asking? Not the hammer and the nail. It's uh, how do we deliver care everywhere equally as if it, it didn't matter what sort of financial situation you were born into, what country and what time in history. It's all the same for every human born from this moment going forward. Right? And I do think immersive has the opportunity to deliver on that promise. And, and medicine, obviously, is an area where we need to achieve that, and we should hold ourselves to that standard. That's a insanely bold vision, which I really <laughs> respect. Um, I, I, I'm trying to get my head around, and this pardon me because this is coming from a ninth grade biology education, so mm -hmm. I could get the science wrong. Um, I always like to lay out in terms of complex VR tasks, this kind of trajectory from uh, training to planning to operations. You kind of need to work through training, get to planning, work through more data heavy, get to operations. You seem to have gone straight to operations, and literally operations. And it's amazing uh, from one perspective, but it's also there's so many issues in terms of computer vision, imagery, getting things right in terms of soft tissue versus hard tissue. Hard mm -hmm. tissue. I mean, I, I, it seems like you're jumping in the deep end first. From a leadership perspective and from a segmenting off the market, um, can you kind of go through that thought process? Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you for setting that up. Um, there's a couple of different ways to go with that answer, but I'll, I'll go right at it because of the way you please. set it up. <laughs> um, basically, our bet was, again, go back to that question of scale, right? Um, some of the decisions get made for you if you say, 
we want to impact every human born beyond a certain point in history, right? Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then we have to do things a certain way. Then starting with training, which is probably where everybody else will start, you know, VR-based training to be to be specific for surgery, is is either not going to get there to that level of scale that we're talking about in terms of the the actual clinical delivery of care, um, or it's going to take too long. And then there's the issue of competition, right? I tend to take a little bit different perspective than like a Peter Thiel who says flee from competition and you know seek monopoly or duopoly or something like that. Um, if you if you've read um, Zero to One or listened to yeah. him talk about it. I tend to, to, yeah, I understand that from a business model perspective and capturing value in the market perspective, but I think, think there's tremendous benefit to seeking out competition, learning from it, uh, assuming that it is always present, even if you can't see it and detect it quite yet, because somebody's working on it in their garage or at some lab somewhere, and they're smarter than you. I just make that assumption about everything we do. Uh, it tends to serve us pretty well in terms of urgency, um, but, but getting it in the hands of the user as quickly as possible with clinical efficacy as the bar meant that whether it's you know, one year, two year, or in this case, four years in the future, if we kept that as the bar, we would be differentiated, right? Everyone else is gonna go after training and the other things that are the earlier stage, like, okay, you can have this win and then you can build on that, great. Mm -hmm. um, but our bet was that everyone else would, almost everyone else would go that route and that we would do the harder thing and make the bet that uh, consumer VR, AR, all those kind of things would continue to develop along, but actually enterprise and in this case, health applications of immersive would be uh, the killer app. Obviously, is the wrong terminology for saving people's lives, but <laughs> but um, you know the the, the life giving application, I guess, doesn't have quite as nice of a ring to it. But we made the bet if we did the harder thing, that includes all scale, right? Scale is every human forever. Um, you know, many trillions of dollars in, in the U.S. economy alone, but globally, just on an annual basis, and then over, over a 10-year, 20-year period is obviously tens of trillions of dollars or hundreds. Um, so it's a big enough opportunity that if you solve even a you know, significant chunk of it, the enterprise value is certainly there. The humanity, that value is certainly there. Uh, and then back to your question, you know, doing the harder thing is going to scare off um, and, and out uh, operationalize many other teams, right? They're just simply not going to be able to to achieve and deliver on the harder solution, which is the clinical solution. And to Vinay's point, physicians are incredibly demanding. Surgeons are even more demanding. And they give you all kinds of different feedback. One of our team members said this week, ask 10 different orthopedic surgeons how to do a case, and you'll get 20 different answers, and they'll all be right, right? So who do you listen to, and what do you put into the product? I don't know if I answered your question, but but those if I framework it out, it's stick to that original question, like at scale. VR-based training for surgery is important, but it doesn't actually solve that criteria of for every human from this point in history on actually improving their care directly. We could argue whether it does or not, but the clinical solution is a higher bar, I believe, and the market opportunity is 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 higher, and providing the solution is much harder. Yeah, I mean, I think Nir said it, put it out really well. You're going into the deep end first, right? And um, it, it it can be risky, but I think again, it goes to the are uh, you asking the right questions? How are you leading through the the problem set and and really trying to kind of build this organization? So really, like two questions, and I think one of it is also a testament to this vision that you have and leadership because it's working out well. Fundraising, right? It it is extremely difficult to do so. However, you've also been successful doing it at a time when fundraising's probably been the worst it's been in in decades. Uh, I definitely want to talk about fundraising and, and see uh, and really talk about how you've continued to maintain traction. And the other thing, too, is um, you're, you're, you've mentioned your team quite a bit, and I've got a chance to work and see your team. The level of talent that you have, how do you even compete with some of the biggest players in tech for this level of talent? So let's let's talk, let's tackle the fundraising question first. OK, and if we can tie talent to culture, I think there's some interesting. For sure. Uh, yeah. So fundraising. Um, Actually, Nirav's question is relevant, right? So if we had launched yet another VR-based training application for surgery, how do you differentiate yourself? How do you cut through the clutter and the noise to go to a world-class investor and say, hey, we're different. We're, we're, we have bigger ambitions. We have you know, bigger, more capabilities to actually meet those ambitions and, and deliver on solutions to the market when there's 20 other VR-based training applications for orthopedic surgery or something, you know? Our friends at Oso VR, Justin, who's the 
the co-founder and CEO there, they're doing great. They're doing great. Yeah. And they're competing and out-competing other training applications there. Um, you know, we made the active decision to go after the thing that is probably uh, higher risk, right, in terms of execution, both on the technology, organization, fundraising, all that stuff, go to market. Uh, but if you do succeed, from a now step into the investor's perspective, okay, if these folks do succeed, their ambition is large enough to warrant significant venture investment, right? And, and again, back to our our raison d'etre, our reason for being is to solve those problems at scale. Well, that, you know, it doesn't just, it's not a coincidence that that works well with venture. We thought about it deeply and said, what is a big enough problem? And you go through your Tim Tam some addressable market exercises and you say, if we solve this first slice of that problem, you know, uh, and for us zooming way into spine surgery as a slice of a much, much larger series of pies, right? $28 billion in the U.S. every year and growing, the significant CAGR. Simply having to redo a spine surgery costs us a billion dollars a year in a specific narrow set of cases in this country every single year. So you kind of have that, that, that zoom way into a very wide slice of pie, that if you just begin to solve that, it's delightful for the users, the purchase decision makers, the hospital, the insurers, obviously the physician and the patient because you only have one surgery and it's done approaching perfection. Um, so that's how we think about the market. And when you talk to an investor and you say, yeah, this is potentially applicable for all of humanity everywhere in the world. It has the potential to raise the level of care for everyone. The markets are, well, it's 20% of the economy. So it's a huge market and growing and it's never gonna stop growing. We're gonna have more human beings for quite a long time. They're gonna live longer, right? You have for the first time in the history of the United States uh, in 2032, 65 and older population will outnumber the zero to 18 year old population in this country. And it's not just the US. China will pass us in their proportionality of elderly population to younger population next year. That's huge, right? Europe is the same issue. Japan's already surpassed us in that way. And those people uh, in the US, 65 and older is about 16% of the population, 16 to 17, but they use 40 to 45% of the healthcare. They represent 40 to 45% of the people who access surgery. So there are two, three X as much, the cost of care for those folks is, is much greater. So we've got this looming problem, right? People living longer, needing more from their healthcare, how are we gonna deal with it? So you take that kind of an argument to an investor and say, all of the secular tailwinds are in our favor. We're solving the, the most, the biggest, hairiest, hardest problem in care. So we're not gonna have as many competitors as maybe somebody else would, because very few are, let's just say audacious enough to try to solve that portion of the problem. And it's only gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger over time. Um, those are the kinds of things that investors like to hear. And you know that argument and story ages well, whether you're in a pandemic or otherwise, right? Um, so let's, let's pivot to talking about that a little bit. So we started raising the Series A earlier this year. Our timing was either awesome or terrible, depending on your perspective, right? Um, we, we ran a good process which is something we've learned over time, which is start that fundraise six to nine months earlier. So that by the time we kicked off the initial conversations on the fundraise in January, of course, we didn't know that the pandemic was going to be what it became. We already had whittled down our list and done our targeting on a global level with all investors down to really our, the three that we wanted. Um, and, and we started that process in January, had already set up all the meetings uh, and basically ran a, a two-month process, January to February, to get everyone in position, um, making the case that it's all of humanity, all of healthcare, all of surgery, all of medicine going forward and starting with this billion dollar wide slice of the pie, but going to the whole thing um, with numerous examples of very large, very successful companies that all at some point come into our, our sites, so to speak. Um, so that's durable, even in a pandemic that puts the healthcare system under strain, right? It actually, helped to refine the point that medicine and the application of medicine is not currently scalable at all. So a storyline that you know, we continued to evolve throughout that fundraise was, again, 17 years to create that one doctor, that one expert. And what, what we're doing is making them more effective and scaling them many X over, over what they currently can do. More uh, and more powerful of an argument. Uh, I'd say, uh, how do you, fundraise in that context, I think I've given some of the pillars, but one is to recognize that investors were freaking out in 
March, April, May, just as much as we were, right? Because of the uncertainty. What are you, if you're an investor of any kind, you're basically a risk manager, right? Across one or multiple asset classes from a hedge fund to venture. Venture is just an asset class for an investor, right? It's an exciting one. It's cool. The technologies are great. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a, there's a risk multiple they apply to each company that they invest in. So first, be compassionate towards investors. I know it's not a popular stance in, <laughs> in tech, I, but- I think it's but the it's first a, time I've heard that, but I appreciate <laughs> kind of that lens, right? Everyone's got to understand who your yeah. customers are and, and making sure that uh, you're taking care of them. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, it's the consumer of that message and that vision, right? And the traction and the execution and the team and all of that, one of those consumers is, is an investor. So in March, when they all started to retrench and deploy their capital to their existing portfolio companies, that makes perfect sense. It's actually an incredibly right. rational behavior. But, you know, new deals, new investments in, in non-portfolio companies went through the floor, right? So for about two, two and a half months, and the numbers are out there. The only deals that got done from new investments in March and April, for the most part, were ones that had already started in, in January, February, or back to, to December. And, and that's why I say we were well prepared, but also executed despite that. Um, and so I think it starts with the compassion for the investor you know, that's that's not any different from any other time in history um, that, that they would respond that way. So uh, 2000, 2001, the tech bubble, 2007, 2008, um, with the assumption that most other teams are not going to be able to execute at the level that, that we hold ourselves to, that standard, I actually got very excited in a, in a uh, kind of a strange way. The crisis, we saw it as an opportunity, right? Stepping aside from the concern for the community and the health issues with, you know, especially elderly folks and underserved populations in our communities, uh, and concern for the team, which we put a lot of effort into trying to, to do the right things for the team. I think good leaders in these kind of situations, I mean, I wrote down on the piece of paper, crisis equals opportunity. And you got to wake up every morning and remind yourself of that. And, and by the way, any delay in a product roadmap under normal conditions is a crisis. Then you turn it every day and every way you communicate with your team, you turn that crisis into an opportunity. Uh, you know, how, how do you continue to, I mean, to communicate with the team? I mean, you, when you're end of a journey or kind of solve these problems, it feels great, right? Uh, but there's there's still also a lot of uncertainty as they're, you know, we're, we're learning that our team members are truly our team members, right? In the sense that there's much more than work that's on top of mind. It's all part of us. Um, how are you messaging? How are you kind of even leading your organization through not just the pandemic, but that journey? Because pandemic or not, there's you have a very human touch uh, to your your team, and you're you're kind of really thinking about them in that level. So explain maybe a little bit of that uh, up into up in that point. Yeah, I think this goes to the kind of unifying theme. One of the unifying themes for the conversation that's kind of crystallizing is what are the sort of new tools of leadership in you know, COVID nineteen while we're in it but also beyond that, and that, that really I do think about as, as opportunity. One for me has been new communication tools, right? So uh, doing an all hands meeting is not like something we invented, right? But dedicating, uh, whether we're doing it entirely virtually, which we did for several months or partially in person and then hybrid, um, dedicating the time to putting together a story and a key theme for each one of those all hands meetings. When we were five, six people earlier this year, when we were you know, coming up to 20, now we're uh, 30 plus, about 50 with, with uh, other team members distributed around the, the, the country and the world. So now you've got 50 people on a call and you're trying to explain to them in May of this year that we should stay focused, that, you know, that we're, we're, our mission is the right mission, right? That we don't have to qualify what we're doing in the context of a pandemic. It's still the most important thing. And, and that putting that time into preparing your messaging for your team, which is like hours a week, right? And saying on Sunday morning, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to create five slides that talk about a concept like the third quarter syndrome, right? So third quarter syndrome is for me, the thinking was born out of compassion for the team. And what are they going through right now? And really forcing myself to go through those steps. Uh, they're looking at me on the other side of a Zoom call. And, you know, some of them have never met me in person we just hired them and we hired them in a completely remote scenario. Yeah. That was totally new for me. So how do I deliver a message of unity, of focus, of purpose in that context? And what, one thing I found was sitting down and taking the time to actually 
be compassionate towards them, what they're experiencing with their families and their communities and the, and the real fear, right? Brought me to this concept, one of many, but third quarter syndrome helped me to understand what we were all going through. And third quarter syndrome is um, really prevalent in astronauts and you know, uh, soldiers who go on in submarines for many months or researchers who go to Antarctica for six months or a year at a time. Um, and what happens is they, they have a defined amount, period of time, call it a year. And in, in our heads, humans just break that up as tasks or goals, right? Okay, got to get through the first few months, then the next, then the next, then the next. Athletes do this too. We were talking earlier about, about basketball. So you save in reserve some energy for, you know, I see a push at the end of the first half of a basketball game and mm-hmm. what teams come out and start the third quarter really focused and executing and who closes really well at the end of the game is a lot about defining the journey and breaking it up into chunks, right? Whether you're riding the Tour de France or whatever. What we tend to see, and astronauts are a good reflection of this, first quarter, there's a bit of a freak out where you go back to your training and try to you know, operationalize getting through that first quarter. And that's part of the reason why in the second quarter, oftentimes your brain kicks in and starts launching endorphins and those kind of things. And you see astronauts actually you know, playing the guitar and being kind of silly during the second quarter of their mission very consistently. It is your physical and mental systems kicking in and saying, hey, I've got a drug for that. I've got an approach to that, right? And so that giddiness is really dopamine hitting the system. The problem with that is just like a drug addict in the third quarter, when you've already adapted to that, right? I already know what that dopamine hit feels like. I need a little bit more. The third quarter, it gets, it can get very dark because you know you're only halfway and you know what that first half took out of you and out of the team. And now the next two quarters look pretty damn long, right? And so the third quarter after that giddiness, we all had the second quarter syndrome where we were like, shit, I'm going to study Spanish. I'm going to take that guitar and pick it back up. I'm going to do cooking, you know, channel stuff yeah, with my That, that my bread family. baking, uh, yeah, it was, was real. Oh, yeah. Right, right. A lot of podcasts were launched during the second quarter. <laughs> <laughs> but third quarter shit gets real, though, right? It's damn, we got at least six more months of this. And when it got very real and when I started to really, I think, connect with my team was when I understood we actually didn't know how much more time there was. It was purely speculation, right? And even now we're maybe have a little bit more granularity, a little more vision on the future, but we're, we're still kind of in that third quarter period where we don't know exactly when we're coming out of this. And so what I tried to focus the team on was just having that be okay. It's totally okay. To, to feel that uncertainty. And, and this goes to like a product roadmaps and development and launch cycle. It's all right if you're in that trough of despair and you're wondering, how do we come out of this? Well, that's my job. And it's a leadership's job. And it is to a certain extent, your job as a leader of one, of just yourself, to, to create that space for that emotion to be, to be real, but not to own you. And, and I think, you know, just creating the time to, to have those all hands meetings and investing in the compassion for the team and saying it's okay to have those feelings and that we're in this together. And it's my responsibility as the leader of the organization to create an environment where you feel that those feelings are welcome and that we can tackle them together. That was a big learning for me. Gabriel, that, that is a amazingly fascinating point. The, the whole, the way you conceptualize that, I, I love it. Um, both in terms of a startup and in terms of COVID, we don't know how long the third quarter is. How do you take that into account? Um, you're kind of halfway to a milestone right now, or maybe a little bit beyond that, but you don't know how much more work there is to 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 cap uh, capture your vision. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you articulate that? Are you always just more than halfway there? <laughs> Great question. Uh, the bottom line is you don't really know, right? You do a lot of things process-wise and. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have the roadmaps and you, you zoom way and get super granular and you take the mountain and work and you break it way down. You know, we know all that, you know, there's a lot of good technical program managers and scrum masters and all that good stuff in the yeah. software world and the equivalent in the hardware world. These are all steps that we take to make sure we can stay on track, right? Um, I think the, the more important learning for me has been, yes, of course you have to do all that. Of course you do. And you need professionals who are better at, as a founder, you need professionals who are better at that than you are. And over time, you need to just continually bring people into the organization who, you know, are way better at each aspect of the job that you've been doing, right? And and your responsibility, I promise I'll get to a a bit of an answer on your question. Your responsibility as a founder 
is to get yourself out of the jobs that you can't be world-class at in the near term. It's a very hard and fast rule. If you don't believe that you can actually, in the near term, for your team, get somewhere approaching world-class at a function, your job is to yourself in that function by bringing in somebody who's better than you at that. Um, I, you know, I have an ego. I'm competitive. I believe I can get good at things pretty quickly. The subject matter expert's going to be better at that than me. And I think sharing that with the team, back to your question, how do you actually help them through the third quarter trough of despair, 51% complete, you know, kind of scenarios is sharing with them that that's okay. And we will be relentless at bringing in people who do this element of this job that you're currently doing better than you're doing it right now. And we're going to put you in a position to succeed, whether you're leading just yourself or a small team or a large team and communicating that to the team that that sort of relentless focus is present throughout the organization. It is a tremendous bulwark in tough times, in crises. Is And the way that I kind of, because of the competitor that I am, the way that I catalyze that for the team is to say, do you think that other organizations aren't losing focus in that moment? They absolutely are. So by maintaining focus on your area of that mountain of work and your leadership of one or many, you have the opportunity to, to be ahead of almost every other organization. By choosing every day to view crisis as opportunity, you're already ahead. Just by making that choice at a very granular level every morning or every time a challenging meeting occurs or we fall behind on a roadmap element, you're already ahead. So let those sort of goosebumps that you feel when you, when you feel like we just did something awesome, well, you just did, right? By, by reinforcing that with yourself, that's a win. And showing that to the team over and over again um, and reinforcing that, I think, is really key. Sometimes the way that I do that is I describe a very difficult situation I'm dealing with with an investor, board, you know, budget, whatever it is, uh, key hire that we're really split on whether we go this direction or that direction on. I just share that with the team, the broader team, and I'll do it in an all hands or you know, whatever, just so they know how much I'm struggling with something very difficult. Uh, and how much they energize me to solve that problem better uh, in order to support them. And that, that helps a lot, I think, bidirectionally. Yeah, I think it's almost having that uh, such a deep degree of, I would say, empathy, right, for everyone involved, right? Whether it's your, I mean, whether it's your investors, whether it's your teammates. Um, and I also think the problem you're trying to solve for as well is that there's a deep level of empathy there as well. Um, I, I like how you talk about competition. And as, uh, for you, competition is really having both a sense of urgency and a sense of quality. Um, so it's not necessarily trying to beat another company, right? It is trying to bring out the best. Um, there's yeah, there's there's so much to really unpack there. You know, I th so you know, in in terms of kind of thinking about empathy, we talk, we actually we didn't cover yet is even try to how to recruit talent for you know, especially competing with these startups. But I think of the many kind of common themes here, um, really being able to lead yourself or an organization is is really building that culture, uh, and that's that, that's kind of been that consistency. There's a lot of intangibles that are not a KPI that you want your team to have, like that sense of urgency, like that sense of quality, like having empathy for others, and. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, really the question for, for everyone, and we'll, we'll end it with you on that one, uh, Gabe, but what does culture mean to you? So for me, culture coming from a technical background at a large enterprise company, one of the things I observed and always communicated with teams was it's usually never a technical issue. It's often just a cultural issue. And for me, what culture means is having empathy, uh, you know, Gabe, you talked a lot about compassion. Um, for me, empathy is very important to the culture, being able to understand the other teams you're working with, their point of view, their pain points, and, and simply trying to get everybody on the same, same page. And the, the way I look at that is, you know, trying to come up with exercises or opportunities uh, for the teams, uh, diverse teams to to share and work on problems that are not uh, confrontational. So from a startup perspective, I think culture becomes a very uh, interesting question because you, you, you kind of think it starts by being driven by vision. Um, and it's really the founder's vision uh, and articulating that, getting other people to, to buy into that, to, to um, 
feel that vision. But the, the interesting point, and Gabe, I, I think you might be at, at it, you're probably further along it than I am on, on this journey, but um, at a cer certain point, it, it flips where you start taking in the culture from your team and what they want to get out of it. And it's become this own thing separate than, from the founder. And, um, you know, it's really, I, I've been at, at startups at that stage several times in my career. And it's just interesting when that happens, uh, when, the, when the company becomes separate than, from the founder. Um, and that's a really interesting time in terms of culture formation. Um, and going back to Kirby's, uh, I think how well you empathize, how well you take that in, that perspective of other people um, to define the company culture kind of is a critical thing about how long those uh, key key members stick around long term. Yeah, I was just jotting some stuff down here because you guys had me thinking. Um, this is an imperfect definition, but one way I think about culture is that it's the blueprint for how your organization makes every decision, both actively and passively. So the ones that you say, hey, here's a key decision we need to make, and the, you know, who washes their dishes and who doesn't, right? It's everything in between, mm -hmm. too. It's the, and I go immediately to Daniel Kahneman, active versus passive cognition, system one, system two, because you're the last thing you said, you were like right in my wavelength at that moment. So, you know, it's contradictory for a founder to say, you know, culture of an organization is more important than founders and lives well beyond that, but it should. And that should be the standard we as founders hold ourselves to. And so what does that actually mean? It's, you know, create the document early and whether you're a team of two or 20, pull in the team in creating that culture document and the pillars on which your organization stands, not because it's etched in stone, actually quite because it's not etched in stone. So when it's a, when you're leading yourself, maybe you can etch that in stone, but it's going to change. That's the only constant, right? It's the only guarantee. But bringing in people into that process to actually write that document, we have a, a Google document that is open to be edited by anyone in the organization. Um, and we share it with every employee, we share it with every team member, we share it with every prospective team member that gets certain uh, degree uh, and progress along the process of interviewing at Proprio. Um, to a person, we share it and say, how do you feel about this? Is this aligned with your own values? Where would you like to see this evolve? Because again, the only guarantee is change. I, as the founder, as CEO, I can't control active and passive cognition in every employee. I wouldn't want to. Actually, what I'm betting is that they will make it better. So then you start choosing those early pillars very intentionally, right? For that uh, type of system to work, it must be built on a foundation of transparency and accountability, service-oriented leadership. That's the only way something like that actually works, where it's a, uh, an intentional evolutionary process, right? Where people are actively thinking about what do I love about this culture and what do I want to improve about it and how am I embodying that? Um, so that's how I think about it is we have a physical document or digital document that everybody contributes to. We go through cycles where we have everybody chime in and say, hey, I don't think we're living up to the transparency, which is in our ethos and in our pillars. It's number one. Okay, well, Gabe is presenting financials to the entire organization internally. The same financials I present to the board of directors, I present to the all hands. It's total transparency from a financial perspective. I can't tell you what another person in the organization makes in terms of salary, that's their information. Um, but I can tell you how the organization is performing, whether it's in good times or in not so good times. And, and just building off that building block allows the rest of that document and the culture to be built on accountability and transparency. And it's important to note here, accountability is not blame. It is ownership. It's an ownership mentality. It is taking initiative. Um, you know, did you support your team member in doing that really hard thing? You know, did you put yourself in the position to succeed? Did you engage in the self-care that you knew was important prior to a you know, product launch or an integration? You know, and that's the kind of accountability we talk about. And that goes, you know, in all directions throughout the organization. I think culture is evolutionary in that sense. And when you do it right, it goes into both system one and system two thinking, right? It's that passive cognition of it just, this just feels like we're doing things the right way. Um, and, and it's you're never done with it, right? Every new person who joins the organization is both an opportunity and a risk to the culture. Um, and so the last point I'll make about that is, I, you know, for those listening, thinking about starting something new or, or, or recently started something, I would st 
strongly advocate for no compromises on culture. And you kind of know, right? You can create that list and you can go through that and say, does this person agree and meet, you know, with this culture well? Um, but you sort of know once you have that internalized in the organization that this is not going to be a fit. I don't care how much of a rock star they are. And, you know, if we're going to err on the side of, you know, think about a couple of, of spectra, right? Um, rock star, but asshole, uh, not, you know, it's not worth the trade-off to me because back to the cultural principles, accountability, right? Me as, an, uh, as the leader of the, one of the leaders of the organization, if I make that trade-off and put the rest of the team at risk, I'm accountable for that. And, and I may have let down the team in making that trade-off, even if there's this huge pile of work that needs to get done and this person's a rock star. Ultimately, not worth it. Uh, and I think that's, a, for us, a hard and fast rule. And coming back to that with accountability and transparency as the number one pillar on which everything else is built leads you to the last one, which is a place where we want to be, whether that's digitally or otherwise, right? It's supported by that underpinning of accountability. That's a, I mean, such a great way to, I mean, kind of end that really a place where you want to be, right? Um, it, it's, it's can be subjective. It is also quantifiable. You know, you've, you, we've spoken a lot about making sure we get, we're adapting um, in terms of asking the right questions. And there's just so many aspects, but you said there's no compromise to culture. Um, and that's such a huge statement. Um, and I think it's probably why, you know, I've asked you earlier and uh, about being able to retain this talent, even attract this talent. I think just that that is something uh, that, that, that I could definitely see being very exciting. Uh, you've really given us a lot of tremendous insights um, in terms of just leadership um, insights into some of the challenges of healthcare and just your perspective around uh, really building a team and just really building yourself and leading yourself. Uh, I think all these things can really apply to yourself as an individual. Um, the sad part of this podcast is really it's the ending as soon as we come to that conclusion. Uh, but I really want to just kind mm -hmm. of leave the listeners kind of with me one kind of uh, last piece of advice for you um, as um, a lot of these opportunities we've kind of discovered they're they're not unique to the pandemic, but they've been magnified for the pandemic. What what is something you want to leave um, you know these these current leaders and future leaders in the XR space as they kind of think about um, the third quarter? Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, when you were asking that question, I was thinking about empowerment. In general, I try to err on the side. This is this goes to culture and team building. Uh, I try to err on the side if there's like a a split point in the middle of that spectrum between empowerment and we call it micromanagement or, or active management, right? I'm always going to err on the side of empowerment, even though there's a lot of cost to that, right? Um, and I think it's even harder when we're distributed and we're primarily working from home because you just hired a new person. Let's say you're early in the organization's history and there's three of you co-founders and you just hired employee number one, right? Not only did you have to hire that person, maybe sight unseen, like never seeing them other than on a screen, right? Um, especially if you're in software development. Um, now you have to give them a chunk of very important work that you just went and raised some money or, or spending your own money, right? As a, as a founder, uh, self-funded. Um, and you've got to go trust them and empower them to go do a really key piece of work. Um, and it's going to be painful because they're going to screw something up or not do it the way that you had hoped they would or whatever it is. But you've got to trust your ability as founders, as co-founders, to go get the right people that fit with your culture that will figure it out. Because the alternative is you're, you're, you're in their business too much, you're micromanaging them, and they don't, you know, that doesn't fit with the kind of culture that you want. Uh, at least that's, maybe I'm projecting, but that's the kind of culture that I want and that I've seen be very successful and frankly be result in great places to work and to be where the work doesn't always feel like work. It, it feels more exciting because I'm that empowered that I'm that entrusted. And I would say in that model, uh, the most important thing is how you respond when they do screw something up, right? Or when it doesn't go exactly how you'd want it to be, which is almost all the time. <laughs> uh, but your response as a leader to that situation, which is inevitable, is the most important thing. Doing that virtually, doing that remotely is even more amplified because then the next time that person has an opportunity to take initiative, you know, feel that empowerment and go after something bigger, solve a bigger problem for the organization, they're going to do it and delight you, right? As, as the participant in that culture that you helped to build. And now you have to let it go. Uh, and then really amazing things will happen. But if you're, if you're not willing to let it go, not willing to let them fall down a few times. And if you, if you're not ready to step in and support them in that moment, 
you won't be able to see that kind of magical moment occur. I think that's even more important in these times of, of crisis is to turn each one of those into an opportunity too. And then I think you'll be pretty delighted with what comes out of that. Uh, that's a uh, super inspiring, um, both grounding and inspiring at the same time, um, and also kind of in many ways hopeful, right? In terms of being able to solve for what's next uh, out there. Uh, Gabe, what's a good way for our listeners to get a hold of you uh, if they if they need to? Yeah, yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter, uh, a Gabriel Jones, um, LinkedIn. I think if you search LinkedIn, you know Gabriel Jones Seattle, I've successfully usurped all the other Gabriel Joneses, and I think I should be the first one to come up. If not, let me know, and I'll make sure to, you know, dial in my SEO or whatever. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Gabe, thanks so much for, for joining us. And, and and for those of you listening, thanks so much for listening on to XRC Pod, especially this particular series, our leadership series. Um, and, you know, we definitely look forward to your feedback and your comments because that's how we grow together as a community. And thank you so much for your time for listening. You can find us wherever you find your podcast uh, and also on XRCPod.com. And let's uh, build something together. Thanks.